epidemiologists had actually modeled the hypothetical spread of a pandemic virus via air travel by using existing air travel schedules. And they found that you could slow a pandemic tremendously just by focusing public hygiene efforts on three airports in the world. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, Dr. J.P. Santiago and I focus our discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic on air travel and related concerns moving forward. Dr. Santiago, as you might recall, is the Dallas-based physician whose daily Facebook updates on COVID-19 have been a key source of information and perspective for me during the pandemic. And once again, I want to harness his expertise to think about what a trip to the airport will look like in coming months and years and how hygiene might now take on a heightened importance in the same way that security in airports was ratcheted up after 9-11. As part of this conversation, we talk about what science tells us about how long COVID-19 stays on surfaces like plastic and metal, information that is as useful for tasks like grocery runs and opening mail as it is for how to navigate air travel moving forward. Along the way, we talk about the movie Contagion and the TV show Tiger King, and we speculate about how this pandemic might fuel the rise of remote medicine and telemedicine in the future. We talk about using historical pandemics to make sense of this one and how an outbreak like H1N1 in 2009 cannot, for various reasons, be directly compared to what we're experiencing now. Perhaps most essentially, we discuss which medical and scientific factors will determine when we're able to return to a sense of normalcy moving forward. We start by talking about how global airports became viral choke points during the time of pandemic. Let's listen in. Airports have been choke points for this pandemic, uh, and specific airports in particular. And one thing that concerns me, or at least is something that I want to think out loud about, is how this will change travel moving forward. And I say that as someone who's not necessarily a very, you know, hyper sensitive person about washing his hands in airports, right? Like, sure. I, like traditionally, I show up to the airport, I've showered, I'll show up, I'll, I'll use the bathroom. Um, I, I usually wash my hands, but in in now that I think about it, maybe should I wash my hands before I go to the bathroom? You know, if if they've been on a hand rest, like the hand rest might, you know, not to be rude about it, but the, if I come to the airport showered, maybe the armrest on the waiting chair is dirtier than my junk, right? You know, right, right. And, and so let's think out loud a bit, little bit about how, in the context of this virus, this pandemic, and how it's transmitted this has and will affect how we travel through choke points like airports and airplanes. Well, you know, the concept of choke points is, you know, is really fascinating because I think that pandemics in the recent history uh, from SARS 2003, MERS in 2013 when it emerged, uh, COVID-19, a lot of the spread of uh, these uh, infectious diseases has been through air travel. And it never ceases to amaze me that I can drive 30 minutes from my house to DFW International Airport and board a Qantas flight and 16 hours later be on the opposite side of the globe. I mean, it's, it's really just the greatest bridge builder, I think, in human history is air travel. Huh. But this is a really an avenue that a lot of 
infectious diseases and emerging threats to our health will travel by. And COVID-19 has been a classic example of that. You know, I think that there was an article I had seen recently that every COVID-19 case in Iceland can be traced to three specific airline flights coming out of the Italian Alps. Jeez. So when we look at kind of like air travel, it's not that we should be afraid of air travel, but I think that what will have to be done in air travel, I think you might see you know, temperature screens, a normal part of the security screening process at airports, looking for febrile travelers. That may be a clue to an emerging disease of some sort. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, 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 the hardiness of the COVID-19 virus on surfaces. Well, think about all the things you touch at an airport. The touch screen at the kiosk when you check in, when you have your arms or hands resting on the countertop at the gate counter or the check-in counter, or when you're sitting there on your airplane seat and you have your arms on the armrest. So there are a lot of surfaces that potentially present issues long-term that may have to require some level of attention from a cleaning and hygiene standpoint. And by no means do I think that we should board the next flight overseas looking like a Howard Hughes germaphobe. <laughs> but I think that a lot of airport authorities worldwide are going to probably have to set up health departments within their airport authorities to address these issues. You know, standards of cleanliness, personal hygiene, levels of cleanliness. How often should a counter be wiped down? What should be used to clean the touchscreen kiosk at the check-in counter? Those sorts of things I think that airports are going to have to start thinking about. And I think airlines are going to have to start thinking about how do we should is there a different way of cleaning our aircraft between flights? You know, will an aircraft have to sit longer between each flight for a more thorough cleaning? I don't know those answers, but I think these are questions that the air travel industry in particular and the airport authorities are going to have to ask themselves in the future. It's not really historically unprecedented either because you and I are old enough to remember when you could take a can of pop through security and drink it on the plane. Um, that, it, that, it, that it feels like a lot of protocols in airports, security specifically, changed after 9-11. And then that – like the shoe bomber and um, some other incidents that happened afterwards really created a set of protocols, in, including that that weird Star Trek scanner that you have to walk through in some airports. Um, and in a sense, this is much less uh, dramatic in, in the terrorist sense, but in sort of the, the quiet danger sense – Airports are going to have to think they're going to have to rejigger their janitorial services in the same sense that they rejiggered their their security services. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think there was a, you know, I had kind of referenced this into an uh, email I sent you earlier um, that, you know, that these epidemiologists had actually modeled the hypothetical spread of a pandemic virus via air travel by using existing air travel schedules. And they found that you could slow a pandemic tremendously just by focusing public hygiene efforts on three airports in the world, Tokyo Narita, Dubai in the Middle East, and Honolulu International in Hawaii. Hmm. These three airports had the right mix of long-haul flights that connected eastern and western hemispheres, the right volume of flights, 
and they were ideally located on the globe as convenient bridge points between eastern and western hemispheres. Now, I think the lessons from this pandemic apply to any international gateway, whether you're flying through London Heathrow or Sydney International, wherever it may be. But I think it's really kind of a fascinating idea that, you know, we always viewed air travel as a way of building bridges and making the globe smaller. Well, it made the globe smaller for viruses, for sure. For sure. And, you know, you you talk about uh, air travel being a bridge builder. It's also this insane historical privilege. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a student uh, and a scholar in, in a sense of travel writing. And you don't have to go back very far in the travel narratives of history to find when people were crossing oceans on ships. And of course, as, as you said in the previous podcast, ships can be their own transmitter of pandemic. But in a way, it's just in our lifetimes, air travel has become not only possible, but it's become affordable. It's been sort of this middle class enabled um, way of traveling the world and and the way of, of taking a nap on the plane and again, waking up in Auckland, New Zealand or waking up in Cape Town, South Africa or Rio, Brazil. So obviously airports and air services are going to have to figure out cleaning, cleaning methods to clean these choke points. Uh, because I, I think one of the articles you sent me said something that like, if 10% more people you know, wash their hands in an airport in these situations, then it can, it can eliminate, you know, dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of illnesses further on down the line. So as individual travelers moving forward in the next year, in the next 10 years, what kind of airport and airplane habits should we cultivate in the interest of our own health and in the interest of common health? Well, I think that, you know, that nothing beats hand washing. You know, and as we talked about in a previous podcast, that's the main entry point of COVID-19 in the human body. It's the virus particles are on our hands and we touch our face. We rub our eyes. We scratch our nose or whatever the case may be. And the virus gains entrance into the respiratory system. And so I think that, you know, washing your hands is not just a throwback to what mom told us when we were 10 years old every time we set foot out of the bathroom. But I think it's a very low-tech, common-sense, hygienic practice to think about. Uh, You know, uh, I'll be traveling soon on a more regular basis uh, for a change in jobs with the Indian Health Service. I plan to have a little thing of hand sanitizer with me in my backpack just to try to make a habit of using it. Periodically through the day would be, I think, uh, certainly not something, certainly be something very reasonable. I think uh, having a willingness to postpone or delay travel when you're feeling sick is a smart thing. You know, every flight attendant that I have ever known always had a joke about being in a sealed tube with 200 people coughing who knows what. Hmm. And that was even before COVID 19 came around. So I think that from I think I think just basic common sense hygienic practices are a very practical, a sustainable, smart approach wherever we might be traveling. I think that the idea of if you go to this country, don't drink the water is going to be we're going to have just as ingrained in our head. Wash your hands frequently after you come in contact with us or carry hand sanitizer with you, whatever the case may be. 
Yeah, I feel like I personally would be someone who's chastened by that because I've just been a mediocre hand washer, you know, just <laughs> like I don't know why, but but for whatever reason, I, I sort of have had this little algorithm in my hand in my head where I think, oh, I'm not sick. I washed this morning. But now I think myself, like everybody else, is just going to have to default to if in doubt, just wash your hands, wash your damn hands. Carry that hand sanitizer. I suspect it might be more made more available now that you might actually get a sanitary wipe along with your Coke and your peanuts on the plane now. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. The un- it's funny because a physician colleague of mine was joking with me the other day. He said, you know, six months ago, he would have eaten an M&M that fell on the floor of his office at work. Now he's afraid to touch the steering wheel of his car. <laughs> well, it, it, it- it really makes me wonder, like a kid who's six years old right now, like when I was six, you eat stuff off the floor, you don't worry about washing your hands, your parents tell you to wash your hands, but you're a little sloppy about it. Well, these poor kids now, you know, they have the, it's probably being internalized that if you don't wash your hands, you could kill grandma, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we grew up at a time where we could safely drink from the garden hose and get hydrated. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. No, I think I think like the fallout of this will affect not only travel, but just the way that people walk through the world. And one thing that I want to touch on um, is is the idea of surfaces and how long we know that the COVID-19 might exist on services, surfaces, because I see I get I see this information online in meme form, some of it that's supposed to be helpful, I'm sure. But I'm always doubtful of memes, you know, unsourced memes that tell you how long things live on surfaces. And as a strange aside, I, I watched the movie Contagion the other day. Have you seen the movie Contagion? I, I've been making a conscious effort to avoid it because I need a decent night's rest of sleep these days. <laughs> well, well, I tell you, they, they, they must have talked to epidemiologists about it in, in a way that was um, sort of hypothetical because there's a particular scene where Kate Winslet in particular is talking to colleagues at the CDC and then she goes on the whiteboard. So at this point, I think we have to believe this is respiratory. Maybe fomites too. What's that, fomites? Uh, it refers to transmission from surfaces. The average person touches their face two or 3,000 times a day. Two or 3,000 times a day? Three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains elevator buttons and each other. Those things become fomites. How fast it multiplies depends on a variety of factors. The incubation period, how long a person is contagious. Sometimes people can be contagious without even having symptoms. This is a movie that came out nine years ago and it really freaked me out. And for anybody listening, (laughs) if you're feeling any anxiety, it's a wonderful movie. It's by Steven Soderbergh, who's a terrific director. If you have any anxiety about the current pandemic, you should probably not watch Contagion just because (laughs) it, it so effectively sort of treats pandemic in the, in the sense of a horror movie monster and it, it is really uncanny. I'm sorry about that aside, JP, but I just watched it a couple nights well, ago. For what it's worth, I'm almost sure they actually did have epidemiologists and scientists that they did consult in the uh, production of that film. Yeah. Well, this is tied into, to again, how long it exists on surfaces, because I'm glad I didn't watch Contagion before I went grocery shopping for myself <laughs> And my parents, who are also my neighbors, who have a combined age of 156, I really do not want to bring anything home 
to um, transmit anything to them. So given the current knowledge about COVID-19, what do we know about how long it lasts on cardboard, on glass, on ceramic, on, on metal, uh, and what practices, again, this is a non-airplane airport practices, although it could apply to airplanes and airports. What should we keep in mind about how long uh, these, you know, COVID-19 exists on surfaces? How should we be careful besides washing our hands? Should we wipe down our Fruit Loops box when we bring it home? What, what are the best practices for this particular aspect of the pandemic? Well, you know, there was a there was a, a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine on uh, March 17, uh, just a few just just recently, that really started the discussion about this the how long did stable COVID nineteen virus particles last on different surfaces? Because we've done a lot of research already about SARS and other coronaviruses in terms of their stability on particular surfaces. And you can't go through your day without interacting in some object, item, or surface, uh, whether you like it or not. The bottom line is really that for metal and plastic, up to three days. Uh, Copper surfaces, uh, cardboard, paper, about two days. All right. So let me tell you what we do in our house, and I'm going to – Frame that by saying that my wife is also a physician, so we probably have a little bit more neuroses than most uh, married couples do when it comes to infections. Right. Um, you know, we're not afraid to go get takeout. You know, a lot of restaurants are closed, so a lot of people are always asking, you know, hey, is it safe to go get Chinese takeout from whatever, or is it safe to go through the drive-through and get an In-N-Out burger or whatever? Well, yeah. I mean, you can't eliminate risk 100% in this pandemic. What you can do is mitigate the risk. So, you know, uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, online grocery shopping. So we pull up to the pull up to the little parking spot there, and they bring the groceries out to the car, or order off Amazon or whatever, and they deliver to your house. You know, we just generally wipe down the the any grocery alley, like canned goods and box goods. You know, maybe like a little paper towel and just a very light bleach solution or a disinfecting wipe. Just wipe it down. Uh, We throw away the bags or boxes that we brought the groceries in with or if we brought takeout, we throw those away after we're done. If the little takeout containers, we finish it off, we throw those out as well. Maybe shift any leftovers to stuff that we have in the house that we wash regularly. So I think that, you know, uh, be reasonable about it, but by the same token, don't be afraid of your groceries. Don't be afraid of your mail. You know, uh, generally we get packages that come to the house or mail. We try to just wipe down the exterior uh, and then we wash our hands after we keep the groceries and uh, handle the mail. So I, I don't think that you have to be, you know, have like a big ritual about it, but I think it's just – do something that's practical and reasonable, and by the same token, don't let your life be dictated by fear. I'm glad you brought up mail because obviously I have a sort of a paranoid part of my brain. 
Um, <laughs> it clicks in when I pick up the mail and deliver it to my uh, 76-year-old mother and 80-year-old father who live next door to me here in Kansas. And so that's good to keep in mind, you know, that it, it's good to be careful but not paranoid, I think. Um, it, you know, washing your hands, even in that situation, um, can just be a useful ritual to go through. I'm curious about other aspects of self-care, both to avoid getting the virus and then, then actually have some questions specific to if you think you have the virus, but the test isn't there yet. And you're just trying to hold steady in, in your own self-quarantine. Um, I know that there's some certain little folk medicine cures that are going around, including one specific bit of audio I got like six times in one day on Facebook. Number one, drink lots of hot liquids, coffee, soups, teas, warm water. In addition, take a sip of warm water every 20 minutes because this keeps your mouth moist and washes any viral, any of the virus that's entered your mouth into your stomach where the gastric juices will neutralize it before it can get to the lungs. I mean, have you been hearing about folk cures that are a little dubious? And besides washing your hands, what folk and not folk cures can be just a way of sustaining yourself if you don't have it? I have some follow-up questions about if you think you do have it. But if you don't have it, um, what if not drinking warm tea to wash uh, the germs into your stomach are good practices right now? Well, you got to understand that Stomach acid is like one of the most potent defense mechanisms in the human body. There are very few things that survive in stomach acid. And unfortunately, those are all stomach bugs. But fortunately, COVID-19 is not very sturdy when it comes to stomach acid. So you can't eat the virus. And so if you drink warm tea or salt water or whatever, well, that's not going to kill the virus, first of all, because – it's going to wash it down to your stomach. What's going to kill the virus is the stomach acid. Hmm. And, you know, this is a virus that colonizes the respiratory tract. All right. That, and for a, for a, for the, for the layman in medicine, the respiratory tract is everything from your nostrils down to the bottoms of your lungs. So you, you can't kill the virus by sipping on warm tea in your throat. If it's also up in your nose. Hmm. You gonna snort the warm tea too? <laughs> I don't recommend it, by the way. I, I see a market for <laughs> snorting tea. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, you're talking about a virus that colonizes the respiratory tract, and to say that you could kill it by having a drink, you're only getting in one part of the respiratory tract, the back of your throat, before it goes down to your stomach. It's not getting down into the upper areas of your lungs. It's not getting up into your nasal passageways. So from a, from, a, from a physiologic and anatomical sense, those sort of approaches are dubious at best. It's funny that you bring up stomach acid because at this historical moment, one of the things I'm reading about everywhere that really doesn't have anything to do with the disease is, is Tiger King. Are you aware of this Netflix show? Yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I, I, I may be the only holdout amongst my friends who hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> well, I just I feel obligated to watch it. I literally watched an episode today which speculates on whether or not a tiger stomach could digest uh, human bones in, in the context of a conspiracy theory that's part of the subplot. So I don't think I don't think that that, that show needs any more plugs on, on 
in, in podcasts or online. But it's funny that you mentioned stomach acid. And at this historical moment, it made me think of like the the the, the, the pandemic buzz show that everybody's watching, which is Tiger King. But that's an aside. You don't have to watch it. It's very entertaining if you do want to watch it, JP. But um Stomach well, acid. you know, I think that, you know, with us being quarantined at home under shelter in place ordinances, I think the stand, the, the bar has been lowered in terms of what we're willing to watch to pass the time. Anyway, <laughs> that, that, that's sort of an aside. I, I know that uh, some people, when I was asking them for input on this episode on Facebook, they brought up the certain rumors, the, which, which might actually be facts of if you are showing symptoms and you have not had a test and you're self-quarantining, should you take ibuprofen? And if not, why? And should it not be combined with certain uh, high blood pressure medications? What protocols and best practices should we go through if we think we have the virus, we have not taken the tests, we're at home, we're trying to get better? What should we keep in mind as we're trying to lighten the load on emergency rooms and cycle through this if we do not have symptoms that send us to the emergency room? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that um, you know, this is what this is what your this is what your primary care doctor is for. You're not sure? Reach out and ask. A lot of medical practices now are trying to do telemedicine type engagements to minimize exposure risk, and I think that you know we have the the, the technology that we use to FaceTime and Skype. A lot of medical practices like mine are, are using those to talk with patients now, whether it's via emails or online messaging or even video chats. So uh, I always tell people that, you know, each and every one of us has got a resource in our neighborhood, in our community, our primary care doctors. Of course, I'm making a plug for my own profession that everybody should have a primary care doctor that they consult with on a regular basis. The ibuprofen question is a tough one. And I think this is one where it shows how we're still learning about this pandemic. If you asked me this question one week ago, I would have told you, don't use ibuprofen. And now, a week later, we're kind of thinking, maybe it is okay to use ibuprofen. And it's not because we don't know what the hell we're talking about. It's because data is coming out as people get sick, as people are treated we're collecting data on what's working, what's not working, what made things worse, what made things better. A week ago, there were a certain class of medications, as well as ibuprofen, that we were genuinely concerned would make the course of infection, if you got infected, worse. Well, since that point, particularly since our last podcast together, um, we now know that those certain classes of medications called ACE inhibitors are okay to stay on. If you have a listener who is taking a blood pressure medication called an ACE inhibitor, then it's probably okay to stay on it. But if they're not sure, if they're, is it a side effect? Ask your doctor. That's what we're here for. You know, uh, as far as ibuprofen goes, um, the data has been a moving target when it comes to ibuprofen. One week ago, I would have told patients to avoid using ibuprofen for a fever if you think you have COVID-19. Now we're not so sure. Should we use it? Should we not use it? And I think the honest answer really there is that 
We don't really know. And I can tell you that's the one answer physicians don't like giving people is we don't know because we want to know. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like the unknown. You know, nothing is more, nothing is an anathema to a physician more than the unknown, not having the answer. And I think the ibuprofen issue with COVID-19 is a classic example of that, that what we thought was the case based on what ibuprofen acts in the body seems to be not panning out to be as big a concern as we thought. Does that mean ibuprofen is not a concern? No, we just don't know. So I think that if someone told me, oh my gosh, I have COVID-19 symptoms and I took some ibuprofen, well, don't worry. You know, uh, again, it falls under that category of, you know, elements of risk. And when we lack data, we sometimes default to worst case scenarios. And I think ibuprofen in this pandemic was really a big example of that, where we said, wow, you know, just to be on the safe side, don't do that. Now, fortunately, there were plenty of alternatives. You could do Tylenol or whatever the case may be. But I think it just kind of shows that, you know, for all what we know about modern medicine, these, this pandemic is teaching us a lot of things in the process. Actually, you, you know, you're talking about these remote consultations, which at this point really make more sense than going to meet in person where, where certain, um, you know, viral elements could be spread. I'm wondering, this is just sort of a think out loud question, if it will change the way medicine is practiced in the future, because a, a strange aside, well, one thing is that you're reading about how people are working at home now, and many of them are proving to be more efficient working from home than they were working mm-hmm. in an office. Another, th- another weird aside is that in the last few days, I, my parents uh, had to get something notarized. And so I found an online notarization service, which worked great until we talked to the people administrating it down in Wichita, Kansas, and they'd never heard of online notarization. Um, and so it feels like, well, someday, I mean, the whole idea of in-person notarization is just sort of an old honesty system. Now, online notarization, they literally video the transaction. You know, if you mm-hmm. want an online witnessing of some sort of document, that it feels like in 10 years, it won't seem absurd to get something notarized online. Of course, I did it online because I didn't want my parents going into town and, and putting themselves in exposure risks. So I guess my aside question is, do you think this will lead to a future of more nominally sick people just sort of calling in to a Skype-type medical consultation before they go to a doctor's office? I think that's. I think it's headed that way. And, I, and honestly, I think it was already headed that direction long before COVID-19 because the technology pieces were already there. You know, it's, it's not much different calling your doctor's office with a question than it is to get on a video chat and talk with your doctor. So conceptually, you're not really doing anything different. I think that uh, what the, this pandemic has brought about is because of the desire to minimize exposure risk, both to ourselves and to our patients, that we've uh, a lot of practices are embracing this, what we call telemedicine. And it's our practice has been doing it now for about two weeks, and it's got its hiccups because it is a little different. You know, I'm used to walking into an exam room and sitting in the same room with a patient and actually getting to examine them. And I think there's going to be scenarios in the future in healthcare where an examination isn't necessary, that you just have to sit and talk with the patient. You know, I used to, 
back in my days of teaching uh, medical students and residents, I used to tell them that odds are you could figure out what's going on with a patient if you just sat down and talked with them for about 10, 15 minutes. Hmm. Your physical examinations just confirmed, just either confirmed or refuted your hypothesis of what they had going on. And so I think there's going to be a certain proportion of uh, physician-patient encounters that are very amenable to uh, a telemedicine-type uh, encounter. Uh, one of my college friends, uh, she's a psychotherapist. So she's doing a lot of her counseling and psychotherapy sessions over Skype. And uh, I've had patients that I've known for years that – I'm in, now talking with over a video link in my office now, and I, I have to say it's quite entertaining seeing my patients in their normal, natural environment at home. I've uh, gotten several tours of backyard renovation projects in the course of our visits. Huh. <laughs> you know, people wanted to show me their house or whatever the case is, and it's really, it's, it's really interesting to me knowing these people as long as I have, and the only time I've seen them is in my office, in my exam room. Now I'm talking to them on a computer screen, and they're sitting in their living room, and I can see the decor of their living room, and I can see what's on their TV. And it really kind of creates this different level of complexity about people I've known for years in my practice, seeing them sort of in their natural environments. Well, you're getting a terrific tour of the greater Dallas area, it sounds like. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm curious about one other aspect of, of just sort of making sense of this medical situation. It, it's so interesting how the ground is moving be beneath our feet in what our assumptions are and what the information is. Because when I first was putting together some notes for this conversation, a lot of information I was seeing online was, well... You know, H1N1 happened in 2009 and we didn't shut down society. Um, are we overreacting? Well, I don't think anybody is making that argument, or at least not that many people are making that argument anymore, because I think it really has, since that argument first appeared on social media, it's hit us pretty hard in America. And we've realized that, you know, we a lot of us do know someone who's, who's sick with it now. Mm-hmm. But in general, just so we can understand the information that's coming across the transom, how useful is something like H1N1 for interpreting what we're going through now? How much, you know, just so listeners have a sense for this, how much do we use previous pandemics to understand this one versus how much do we just assess the data that is coming across the transom in this moment? Well, I think that, you know, it's important for people to realize that when H1N1 reemerged in 2009, we had, the last time we saw it was that disastrous pandemic in 1918. Hmm. So the medical community at large, worldwide, looked at this and said, you know, holy shit, it's H1N1. We hadn't seen it since 1918. Wow. And so the response by the medical and scientific community to the emergence of H1N1 when those first two cases came up in California and the second two cases came up in Texas was very swift. And so when those first cases emerged, there was a very aggressive uh, pandemic response. All right. Uh, scientific and medical teams went into these communities, interviewed people. Who are you around? What have you eaten? Where could you have gotten this? Who have you come in contact with? We call that contact tracing. 
they were testing people. You know, uh, we've all been to the doctor's office and got a little swab to see if we have the flu. Well, that's what we were using in 2009. And because the emergence of H1N1 was such a worrying concern, there was also a very brisk international coordination of effort, not only in coordination of research and uh, scientific analysis of the data, but also in the surveillance in their respective countries. Everybody wanted to make sure if they had a flu-like illness cropping up, it wasn't H1N1. So that was really the first thing we did right with H1N1 was we had a very aggressive, boots-on-the-ground, upfront response that contained it. We still got a lot of H1N1 cases that year, but nowhere near to the level that it could have been to the scope of 1918. The second thing that we have with working in our favor with H1N1 is that it was an influenza virus. And so there was already some degree of latent immunity in the world population from exposure to other influenza viruses. So while H1N1 was certainly a dangerous virus, we had all been exposed as a world population to enough other influenza strains that we had some level of immunity already to fight H1N1. We don't have that for COVID-19. We're, we, if we do, we, don't, we haven't found it yet, and we don't fully understand it. But part of the reason that COVID-19 is moving so fast is that there's not really any latent immunity in the human population. The third thing that we had uh, in 2009 when H1N1 reemerged is we got a vaccine fast. And when we make a flu vaccine every year, it's changed. Uh, beginning of each year, they, an international committee of experts tries to forecast what the most predominant flu strains will be that coming year. And they engineer the vaccine to match that forecast. So flu vaccine is sort of like a plug and play. Hey, we think it's going to be H3N5. Okay, well, we got that here. We'll put this into the vaccine for the coming year. So we got vaccine development very quickly with H1N1 because we already changed flu vaccines on a yearly basis. It was a very easy matter to change the vaccine on short notice. And the last thing that worked in our favor in 2009, we actually had medications for influenza. So this is like the Tamiflu that mm. a lot of people are get whenever they get influenza. You know, we don't have a medication for COVID-19. Now there are some Research trials currently underway on a variety of medications, but a lot of these medications are really – these research trials are focused on people who are really sick, the ones that we're trying to bring back from the brink. As, but when H1N1 emerged in 2009, we had a medication that your primary care doctor like myself could give you a prescription for and you could take it to the local drugstore. Get 10 tablets, you took it for five days, and you were good. We don't have that for COVID-19. So we had four pieces in place in 2009 that really helped us kind of attenuate the severity of H1N1 without locking down society worldwide. Is the word novel, is, is that part of why we are not as comfortable reacting to COVID-19 as H1N1 in 2009? Is it because 
is, is I saw that word a lot before the word COVID-19 came in. It was called a novel coronavirus. Does that mean mm-hmm. that we're just not really equipped? We don't have those four points of reaction because it's novel? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's novel to the human body. It's new to the human immune system. So when in medicine and infectious diseases, when we use the term novel, uh, you know, we're not talking about Herman Melville. Huh. Uh, we're talking about something that's never been that the human body has never fought off before. And so it was called novel coronavirus. So one of the scientific names for it initially when the first cases started emerging was NCOV, novel coronavirus. Hmm. And so that's what that that's where that term novel comes from. No prior exposure in humans. Do you foresee this committee of experts also convening each year for COVID-19 and other and similar coronaviruses offshoots, or is it too soon to say? Well, you know, I think it's a very real possibility. Um, one of the things that we're concerned about now in the medical community is what happens this fall. We already know that here in the United States, uh, the, it's going to probably be peaking across the country at various stages throughout the month of April. And then if we can maintain our social distancing measures and push those social distancing measures all the way out into May, then maybe we get some semblance of normal life back. But what happens in October? What happens in November, a year from the first cases when they emerged in Wuhan? Is it going to come back? In 1918, H1N1 circled the globe three times. And that's in an age with not as extensive travel as we have today. So I think there's an every real expectation that a vaccine for coronavirus is necessary because it's probably going to be something that we start seeing on a seasonal basis. I'd almost be willing to bet the balance of my outstanding student loan debt that come and fall, every fall you'll be vaccinated for both a flu and a coronavirus and a combination vaccine. This, this sort of leads right into my next question, which is sort of the my last big picture question, which might be hard to answer, but it's the question of when do things become normal and what will normal look like? You know, because people are indoors. This It's this historically unique time as we're talking. It's the very end of March. It feels like the beginning of March was a thousand years ago. Um, we would all love to get back to our businesses and schools. We would love to attend sporting events and concerts. What are the scientific and medical indicators that are going to tell us that, yeah, it's okay to go back to our offices. Yeah, it's okay to to restart the NBA or Major League Baseball season. What are or what are the indicators that say, yeah, it's okay to get on a flight to go to see your Aunt Betty in Seattle or to go have a vagabonding adventure in East Africa? Um, given that you can't really see the future as a medical professional, what data points are you looking for? What factors are you looking for that will transition us into our new version of normal? Well, I think if we're just going to look at the data first, I think I'd like to see the number of daily cases and the number of daily deaths dropping. Because that tells us we're on the backside of the slope. And that tells us now we can start thinking about how long do we maintain social distance measures to ensure we stay on that downslope. 
Because historically, from the 1918 pandemic, cities that let up on social distancing too soon saw a second spike. And it was worse than the first spike. Hmm. So I think that from a data standpoint, we're going to be looking for the number of new daily cases and the number of deaths, daily deaths due to COVID-19 to clue us in that we're now on the backside of that spike. What we're seeing right now in the United States, we're still on the upslope. We haven't hit the summit yet. A big chunk of the country is probably going to hit the summit sometime in the middle of April. So I think that looking at the data, that's going to be my clue that now we can start thinking about how long do we need social distancing? Because right now the answer is we need social distancing now, urgently. Well, once we get into that backslope of the curve, now we can start thinking how long should we have social distancing? Because we're going to need it on the backside of the curve to prevent a second spike. If we let up social distancing in May, we're going to have a spike in deaths in June. So we want to avoid that because uh, we all want our lives back. You know, I'm fairly certain my dog is sick of me walking him multiple times a day. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing that I think we'd look at is rapid on-site testing. You know, kind of like when you go to the doctor and get, get a little swab and they can tell you in five, 10 minutes whether you have the flu or strep throat. I think right now, the testing we have has to go to specialized laboratories. Having an on-site test at the point of care, your doctor's office, the urgent care facility, the ER, is going to give you an answer right then and there. Hey, you've got COVID, go home for 14 days. Or no, this isn't COVID, go about your day. That technology is on the horizon. I think that we're going to see the first point-of-care rapid tests start showing up here in the United States sometime in April. So I think having rapid identification that's widespread and easily available is also going to give us our lives back. I think the third thing we need is a vaccine. I think the vaccine is going to be a big, big tool in our toolkit for being able to live our lives like we used to. And then the last thing is a test that shows prior exposure. And this kind of dovetails with vaccine development. You know, there are antibody tests because antibodies are our body's long-term immune system memory. You go to the doctor and you get a flu shot, we are tricking your immune system into making antibodies to recognize those particular flu strains if they ever enter your body. So we need a test that shows if someone's been exposed to coronavirus and has immunity, then they don't need the vaccine. They don't need to worry about getting it again. Hmm. And that technology is also in development and is already being deployed in a, large, in a, small, in a small scale basis right now in the United States that is sure going to expand over the course of the next few months. So I do think that our normal lives will come back to us, but it's probably going to require a lot of patience on our part as a community, as a nation, and as a planet to make that happen. Because there are whole parts of the world that don't have access to the things we do. You know, how do you practice social distancing if you're living in a yurt somewhere 
with no running water, with three generations of your family. You know, you saw the picture, I don't know if you saw the pictures in the news of all the temporary and migrant laborers in the cities of India uh, jamming on buses and trains trying to get back to their home villages as the Indian government has put the country on lockdown. You know, so I think that as we look forward into the future of what does coronavirus mean as terms of our normal experience, I think that we also have to be cognizant that the idea of hand washing and social distancing and getting my groceries delivered to my house is an option for the affluent and the well off. Mm. You know, how do we approach coronavirus in the future? in places like the slums of Rio de Janeiro or the refugee camps in Nigeria, you know, or the shanty towns outside of Manila, you know, those are going to be questions that are going to also be important because while we all want our lives back, we also have to have a bigger picture because any place we can't control coronavirus is a place where it can take foot and threaten us again. Hmm. So solutions so coronavirus in the future are going to have to be global solutions. And that's where political leadership comes in to coordinate international uh, efforts at control and prevention. Yeah. One, one interesting thing about interviewing various travelers all over the world was that there's many these developing countries which seem very exposed to this pandemic, but also they're also the same places where people are used to hardship. Part of the complication here is that as Americans, we're really comparatively not used to hardship. <laughs> yeah. What's it called? We call it hashtag first world problems, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, well, keeping that in mind that I probably have a first world audience and that we're in this weird historical moment where you know eventually you know there will be widespread testing there will be a vaccine of sorts but right now we don't have those things and we're all walking our dog nine times a day <laughs> so for the person <laughs> who does have a very exhausted dog and they're sitting at home and, and feeling anxiety um what kind of things just as on a final note should they keep in mind um besides the fact that these are first world problems um but anxiety is real so uh what might you tell people well, don't pigeonhole it. You know, I always would tell my patients there was a fine line between perspective and denial. And I think it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be mad or frustrated. But what's counterproductive is acting upon it. And what's just as counterproductive is to delegitimize it by telling yourself it could be worse because you're not confronting the emotion, you're not addressing it. So I think that when you see what our temporary normal is now in shelter in place and social distancing and no baseball on TV is, number one, it's temporary. Uh, we're making strides. It doesn't look like it on the news. And what you see on the news isn't overblown. It's real. But in the background of all that, it's giving us reams and reams of data and medical understanding that'll bring our lives back and make the world a better place at the end of the day. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Luke Van Tassel did the episode art. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.